song already here and the song offering was written by um, well, Brian Courtney Wilson along with some of the other musicians in our community for our community. And Marlon approached the United Methodist Church and really in his, um, in his way suggested that these songs be a part of the United Methodist um, hymn book. And so these songs are certified hymns that churches sing all over the world that were created for our community by our community and now are being sung all across the globe. In six different languages. So when we sing already here, yeah. So when we sing already here and when we sing offering, we are joining nations of people who are singing and praising God using these words. Isn't that cool? I just think that's amazing. So anyway, that's not a part of my sermon, but I just want to let y'all know. So guys, at Awakenings, we do something that's called the blessing. Y'all know that we've been walking through this uh, thematic series of micro-mastery. Um, and so I want to get right into it. So let's bless each other. The blessing is not a gift that you give somebody. Elders and
Get your last little swallow juice. Get your last little swallow. Have a seat. Last little bite. Sadly, the stuffed cups are not a part of the complimentary breakfast, but they are for sale. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, guys, I'll just ask Ellis. Where are you, Ellis? Okay. I asked Ellis. I asked Ellis how he heard about us. How he got here. He said Instagram. He came to this gathering because of Awakenings Instagram. Y'all know Shelly is the driving genius behind our social media. So thank you, Shelly. Instagram flexing, y'all. Shelly always says y'all, so when yeah. we say y'all, it's a tribute to Shelly. But um, <laughs> Shelly, just thank you so much for your creativity and for your intention. Um, because now we have Kelly and Alice in here because of it. So guys, don't forsake, well, what did, um, what did the living color say? Don't underestimate the power of the Instagram. Don't underestimate it. So guys, please um, repost, retweet, re and share what you see on Instagram. Take pictures of the screen. Tag your friends. Um, and, and let's, you know, share what we're doing with folks. Because I think it's good. Turn to Mark chapter 5. So this idea of <clears throat> micro-mastery, we talked about micro-mastering our thoughts. We talked about micro-mastering our passions. Last week, Marlon did a wonderful job unpacking how we must micro-master our possessions, our time, our technology, our money. So this week we're talking about how to micro-master our relationships. Uh, the original title was How to Master People, but that has some, <laughs> some distant memories for me of negative uh, connotations, so I changed it to micro-mastering your relationships. We don't want to master people. Uh, so turn to Mark chapter 5. You there? Not quite? You're almost there. <laughs> it's on the screen too. Um, so this is interestingly one of my favorite stories in the in the in the New <laughs> Testament. It's about when Jesus um, heals this little girl. So while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus. Is that how you say that? Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. They said, "Why bother the teacher anymore?" Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And what happened? Let's read the last sentence together. Go. But they all laughed at him. People went from wailing to laughing. That's some emotional roller coaster right there. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told him to give her something to eat. So this story, we're gonna unpack it and unwrap it because I think Jesus really demonstrates some great relationship dynamics and some great decisions in this story. 
So micromastery. Let's read this together. It is reducing the essential from the useless in order to master our lives. We have to learn how to reduce the essential, put the essential right before our focus, and then do away with the useless. Because we can master the useless. Has anybody ever mastered something useless? Yeah. And been like, why did I spend my life? I can't give my life back for doing this. So in order to master our lives, we have to reduce the essential from the useless. And what will happen is we'll become a master at that which is essential. Isn't that nice? To become a master. And that's the, one of the best ways to grow what you have. You know, the whole beginning of the thematic series, we were talking about how if we're faithful over little, God will make us faithful over more. Meaning, if we master what little we have, God will grow. And there are plenty of testimonies right in this room of how you mastered what little you had, what little teaching job you had, what little internship JJ you had, what little flower and girl uh, chocolate chips you had. And God has grown it, you know? So let's read this together. Ready? Go. Choosing not to micromaster our lives is choosing to be an enslaved. If we don't focus on the essential, we'll do so if we're not intentional to focus on the intentional, on the essential, we will unintentionally focus on the useless. You know? Some of us have learned this lesson the hard way that when we don't do what we're intentional to do, we will do what we don't intend to do. And then gotta go behind what we did and follow up and explain it. But I didn't mean it, but I didn't, but I didn't think it would. Uh, 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 uh. And the Bible gives us a guide for how to focus on what's essential. The scriptures give us a really good suggestion for how to decide what is a sifter for what's essential. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Think about such things. This is the, the sifter for how we should reduce the essential from the useless. Okay, what's happening right now? How can I think on these things? And see, because we're talking about relationships, I want us to just switch I want to switch the word think, and I believe that we should feel on these things. Let's, let's shift our emotions to whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy. Let's feel on these things. That's easier said than done. You can't just poof, change your emotions. Can, any, can anybody here just change their emotions? Like, I don't want Christmas anymore. Poof. Sometimes? Yes. You can? I guess when you have to, you do. It's hard though, y'all. So anyway. <laughs> so I believe that it's hard, y'all. So I believe that the emotions always ask us questions. These questions, Marlon, these questions are amazing. Has anybody been using these questions to like respond? I have been using these questions for the last few weeks to, to, um, to help me respond to certain challenges in my life. And I feel like I'm a... I have a little bit more mastery over my own responses to things because of these questions. They're not just mind questions, um, but they are also emotion questions, and the soul has the answers. The soul responds with the answers that we just read in the scripture. And so sometimes our emotions, when in relationships, our emotions ask us, um, are we in danger of losing what we need? 
Are we important? Are we worth loving? Are we a failure? And when the answer to these questions are yes, we emotionally freak out, right? And then we do that in relationship with other people. And then we damage our relationships. And then we don't end up with the kinds of connections and the kind of lives that we want, and we don't know what happened. We try to move on and we try to move forward, but we're not quite clear. And then sometimes, for some of us that are in longer relationships, sometimes we the, the answer seems like yes to these questions so often that it's hard to unravel like where it started. So you just forget it and just want to move on and walk away. But I believe that if we respond to our emotions questions with the soul's answers, we'll have much better interaction. We'll master our relationships. We'll have much better experiences together. We'll have much less conflict and much more resolution, you know? We must, when faced with someone who may have said or done something that communicates that you may lose something, when somebody don't show up when they say they're going to show up, when they don't do what they say they're going to do, or when they don't provide what they say they're going to provide, your emotions start to say, oh, Lord, am I in danger of losing what I need? Is this person going to make me lose it? Truth is, are they going to make me lose it? Am I going to have to go off? Right? Because that's how you feel. You feel like you have to. You gotta let them know, cause you're in danger of losing what you need, and you can't, you can't, you can't have that. You respond to your emotions, questions with your soul's answers. I have what is essential. There is no material possession that I would lack right now that would end my life. There's nothing anybody can do, short of walking up to me with a weapon, that would cut my supply of life off. So I have what is essential right now. Sometimes we get into conversations and experiences with folks that mess with this question right here. Are, am I important? This person ain't called me back, this person ain't texted me back, this person ain't showed up, this person ain't did this or that, and because of this, I don't know if I'm important. So I had to go off, because I had to let them know that I was important. You know what I'm saying? We always find some reason to go off. I had to shut them down and let them know. When you're focused, so when you're answering, when your emotional questions is am I important? The soul's answer is to go and serve. The best serve the rest, right? Jesus, that's right. what Jesus said. So when you ask yourself, because of your experiences in your relationship, am I important? The best thing to do is go focus. You know, this is a this is a clinical prescription. Psychiatrists that do inpatient psychiatric care encourage their patients to go and serve the group that they're a part of as a part of their recovery. Right? So this right here is scripture, but it's also like clinically proven to ease depression and ease mental disorder. Okay, am I worth loving? Y'all, our emotions can really mess with us when we have these brushes up against these relational experiences, and sometimes it reminds us of ways that we were abused, sometimes it reminds us of ways that we were neglected, sometimes it reminds us of the ways that we were left out, and we think, that happened to me because of, there was something about me that attracted that behavior. You know, there, there, there must be something about me that made my mama, my daddy, my friends, whoever, not want to take care of me. Not, it, it was something about me that made me not worth loving. That is the emotional question that we ask ourselves. But the soul's answer says, 
that you are invaluable when you focus on being the authentic you. There's only one you made. So when we really begin to enjoy what is unique about us, really begin to explore the things that only we were put on this earth to do, we really begin to dive into, dare I say, what we like about ourselves, what we know to be authentic about ourselves, the soul will answer that question. And you don't have to commit these crimes of passion <laughs> to communicate that we're worth loving. Well, like he would, I, I had to tell him that I was worth loving, so I just took my key and just ran it on the side of his car to let him know that I was worth the baby. You know what I'm saying? That's like one of the most classic like 80s scorn lover things to do, is just to just you know what I'm saying? Sugar in the gas tank? Does that really work? Somebody shook your gas tank, Walter? No. One of them girls at them concerts, Walter. You didn't show her no love. He was up there just, just, just singing it. I got you. Oh, I, I noticed you switched cars. It must be that shit. And then lastly, am I a failure? We're so afraid to fail. We're so afraid that the things around us communicate failure. We're so afraid that our, that our, even when we get sick, don't y'all sometimes feel like when you get sick, you fail at being like, well, if you catch a cold, you're like, ah, oh, I ain't got a cold. I ain't got a cold. I didn't do it. I didn't give myself a cold, you know? We're so afraid of failure. I mean, emotions ask us all the time, are we a failure? And when we start to think in relationship that we've done something to someone else that communicates a failure, we start backtracking, we get defensive, we start trying to cover it up. We start trying to pin it on the other person, you know? And then we go off. And so you have to say to yourself, my emotions are asking me, am I a failure? And the, question, the answer to that question is no. Where are you abundant? Your success will only come from where you have abundance. So you start looking for graciousness wherever you are. Even if you make a mistake, you're not a failure. That is a mistake, but you are a creation, right? And so when the emotions start asking these questions, the soul has an answer of like, where can we look for graciousness? Where can we find abundance? Even if that abundance is found in the grace that you get when we apologize, right? For the mistake, but we're not owning the fact that we are a failure. You know it's impossible for a human being to be a failure? If your body is functioning, and if you can communicate and move and like go to the next thing, you are a success. <coughs> You're a successful creation, right? So even in your mistake, you are a success. So let's read this together. We have to make this declaration, I think, audibly so that our brain can tell our heart that it's time to, to make a change. Ready, go. I will master my relationships or they will enslave me. Have you ever felt enslaved by a relationship? You ever felt like you just, ugh, just trapped? You ever felt like just hiding your phone and just like going off the grid because there's just one phone call, one text? You ever been relieved when somebody canceled their plans because you really didn't want to go in the first place? Did you feel enslaved by this relationship? You don't want to babysit somebody, you know, with these plans that y'all made? Y'all, relationships can enslave us. Yeah. If we are in relationship and we're not mastering how we behave in these relationships, we can end up being in relationships that are supposed to be good and feel shackled. 
So this is the definition of a relationship. I just like for us to all be on the same page with our definitions, because some of us define relationships differently. Relationships are very neutral. They're very neutral. We put the stuff on a relationship, but they're very neutral. Relationship, a connection, association, or involvement. The second definition is an emotional or other connection between two people. I would submit to you today that there are no relationships that are not emotional. Sorry, guys. I don't care if it's a relationship between you and a security guard at your job. It's, there's some emotions connected to it. How you doing? Just fine. That was an emotional exchange. Legacy badge. Legacy badge. That's an emotional exchange. <laughs> Old Otis had an emotional relationship with all the people at the little, uh, the little scandal that he had to go through. Everybody, he wanted it down. Bella Yella. How was that? It was emotional. Okay? Every relationship you have, there are some emotions connected to it. And the more we embrace that, the more we recognize that, the more masterful we'll become. So there's this thing called emotional intelligence. The short definition or the short little acronym for it is EQ. Um, so Marlon teaches about emotional intelligence all the time. And since he first introduced the idea to me, I've become obsessed with it. Um, don't they use emotional intelligence at the minor school? Emotional intelligence and the multiple intelligences. Um, and so, dude, like, this is the way we, the, the, the foundation of a lot of our initiatives, the foundation of a lot of our projects, the foundation of even folklore films, and even Souls and Serenity, everything that we do has a component of this emotional intelligence theory to it. So I've just been learning more about it, and I love it. So it's in, the, uh, in 1990, these two psycholog psychologists, Peter Salovey and John Mayer, not the John Mayer that we know. <laughs> Even though his songs are very emotionally intelligent, he didn't have them do it. And then this guy named Daniel Goldman published a really popular book in 1995 about connecting emotional intelligence to like how you act at work. And then Roy Oswald and Arlen Jacobson developed a study on Jesus' emotional intelligence that just came out this year. And so I'm like, wow, this emotional intelligence stuff, it, it gets like, I've been wondering about Jesus' emotional intelligence. So anyway, this is what it is, basically. Emotional intelligence, let's read it together. Ready, go. The ability to monitor one's own and other's emotions, to discriminate among them, and use this information to guide one's thinking and actions. So these psychologists think that emotional intelligence is just as important as your intellectual co quotient, your IQ. Right? So it's not just what you know but how you communicate what you know that determines your success rate, right? So there are a couple of different areas where emotional intelligences show up. One is self-awareness, your emotional self-awareness, kind of self-explanatory. Your self-management, your achievement orientation, how adaptable you are, your self-control, whether or not you remain positive as you have an outlook, Social awareness, how you perceive what's happening around you, how you express empathy and organizational awareness, and then lastly, my favorite, relationship management. How do you manage conflict? How do you coach and mentor? How do you influence? Do you develop inspirational leadership? How do you work on teams? These are the places where Daniel Goldman, who wrote the, the book in 95, said that this is how emotional intelligence shows up in Europe vocation. And this is in a very important place to demonstrate emotional intelligence because this is where you get your money from, right? So better be emotional intelligence there. 
And then I like this definition. Let's read this together by Oswald and Jacob and go. The very definition of emotional intelligence is the ability to control one's emotions, not to put a damper on them, but to be able to use emotions constructively to achieve desired goals and to form strong, positive relationships. What would our lives look like if we could do this? What'd you say? Rainbows and unicorns. Oh. And like glitter everywhere. <laughs> like what is, and, and see this is something that I've always struggled with because I'm like, well, I've always felt like as a believer, as a Christian, as a leader, you know, I'm, that's been drilled into me since, you know, children's church, you guys are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and you don't get to have any emotions. You don't get to have any feelings. You don't get to show that you're upset. You don't get to demonstrate that you're sad. And if somebody does you wrong, turn the other cheek and walk away like it didn't affect you. Like this is the lesson that I perceive, maybe not what I've necessarily been taught, but it's what I caught from, the, from all the Bible studies, right? That the Christian is just this robot that never has any tears or any attitudes or anything. But this clears it up for me. It's not to put a damper on our emotions, but to control them and be able to use them constructively. That word constructively. Constructively. That, the root word of that is construct. That means to build. Yeah. What if we use our emotions to build something good yeah. in our world and not to destruct other people? Not to check other people. Not to take them down a peg. What if we use our emotions as fuel to construct something good? Maybe something that prevents the next person from feeling that way. Goldman says, IQ may get you into a job, but EQ is needed to perform at the highest level. Yeah. You know, it's geniuses all over the world that don't know how to talk to people and can't hold jobs. You know what I'm saying? With a good attitude, you can learn anything. Good attitude, you can change anything. A positive attitude can get you indoors, the degrees cannot. And so if we really learn how to master our relationships, we can have this pervasive good attitude where we don't dampen our emotions, but we use them to orient ourselves to really build something good in the world. Yeah. We're Carl Thomas. We're so emotional at home. <laughs> so why do you think it's why do you think it's harder to be emotionally intelligent at home than it is to be emotionally intelligent at work? Yes. So you don't have to worry about your paycheck. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the payoff the payoff at home is a little different, eh? We get comfortable. My spouse ain't gonna leave me, my kids ain't gonna leave me, they in it, so. Yes, I can. It requires a different kind of emotional intelligence. The other thing is, we're tired by the time we get home. We've been, we've been emotionally intelligent at work all day, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell them, like, don't talk to me. You gonna be here, you fine, what else? 
Did I bring some meat? No. Do you have two legs? Yes. Go eat your own food. Yes. collectively is that we do a better job of assessing what's at stake at work and we don't assess what's at stake at home. There's more, there's more at stake than a paycheck at home. There's lives at stake at home. There's health at stake at home. There's mental health at stake at home. And sometimes it becomes easy for us to get into a routine where we're constantly moving in this monotonous routine and we're not assessing what's at stake mm -hmm. with my responses. I'd like to introduce to you a lovely group I call Jesus and the Emotions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's look back at that story in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, he goes and um, he goes Jesus and the Emotions. Ladies. So now, now find, find yourself in this scripture. Find yourself in this story. Find what character you might be. But he's in the, in the street. Synagogue leader named Jairus comes up to him and says, I need you to come help my daughter. Some folks say to him, hey, she's already dead. Don't even bother him anymore. So think about this. A child has just been pronounced. And Jairus has been standing there asking Jesus to help him while he stopped to heal this lady. Well, he stopped to address this lady who just touched his garment. This is right at the end of the issue of blood story. Oh, I preached on this last time, so I'm picking up where I left off. I like that. So he just stopped to address this lady, taking time away from him, possibly going to meet this little girl at this house. While he's talking to her, he, he hears that she is dead. What do you think is happening in Jesus' emotions? Am I a failure? Did I miss it? Did I miss my opportunity to go heal this little girl? What else? Compassion. Do you think he may have felt a little urgency? Like, oh, oh, okay. I think Jesus might have been at work and been like, oh Lord, this is my this is my job, you know? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just what? Believe. Believe in what? My daughter's already dead. Believe in what? Funeral plans? Believe in a repast? Like what? Like what's going to happen? He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Can I ask you a question? How many disciples were there? So why do you think he just picked three to come with him? They were essentials. Hey, can I ask you a question? Who are we picking to go into our most essential tasks. Who's, who's in our crew? Yeah. Who's essential? <laughs> when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion. So he's outside. Jesus saw a commotion of people wailing and crying loudly. What do you think was happening in Jesus' emotions when he saw all this commotion? 
Anxious. Anxiety, yeah. There's no wrong answer with that. Nah, it's like, don't worry about this. I got this, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Sleep. I, when I get there, everything's going to be good. I'm Jesus. He, he said, <laughs> well, I'm Jesus. Yes, okay. I like that, Ella. And you know, honestly, that's what he said. He came in and said, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. I'm Jesus, I got this. And then everybody busts out laughing. What would you feel like if the whole room busts out laughing at you? And very distracted. Wait, excuse me, excuse me. Ella, what did you say? reject them. He did not check them. Right. He did not shut them down. He didn't go off. He simply re lovingly removed them from his home. Then he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up, which is so simple. Get up. No flexing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, no magic. He didn't wave his cloak or nothing like no flourish. Nothing. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to say anything, and then said, get this baby something to eat. I feel like that's the equivalent of like, dropping the mic. Like. <laughs> <laughs> you know? We out. <laughs> Jesus is so cool. But this is what he was doing, though, y'all. Jesus was like the consummate micromaster of these relationships. The first thing Jesus was is he was self-aware. Yeah. Yeah. He knew who he was. Who he, was. Yeah. he knew what he came to do. He knew that no immediate responses, reactions, words, laughter, crying, none of that would change what he had to do. Not even the timing of his arrival. He knew whether that girl was cl clinically dead or not, that he was going to walk in there and wake her up. He was self-managed. 
He was able to control himself. I know he felt everything we said and more. He was human. He was infuriated. He was embarrassed. He was a little afraid. He was like anxious. He was all the things that we are when we are in front of the next big task. He's all the things that we are when we dare to communicate a dream out loud. Because we know saying the dream out loud makes us accountable to at least trying it, you know? He was self-managed. He was able to control himself and not just wild out at the, the, the first sign of trouble. He was socially aware. He knew what was happening in the room. You know, I, as I read this story, I wonder what was happening in the other relationships in the room, you know? Like, what was happening with the people that were crying and wailing? Were they doing that because they were sad, or were they doing that because they wanted to manipulate Jesus? Were they doing that because they were, like, passively testing his authority, you know? And why did he tell the parents to immediately get the child something to eat? Was she malnourished, which is why she had fought, passed out in the first place? Like, what, what was going on in the family dynamic, you know? And so Jesus was socially aware. Jesus knew how to walk in understand how he was feeling, assess the situation, and then use his emotions to remedy what he saw in the room. Mm. Lastly, Jesus was a relationship manager. I think it's so interesting that he would have been well within his rights as a rabbi, well within his rights as a teacher, well within his rights as the, the healer, to say and do whatever he felt like doing in the room. We, we all know pastors like this. We all know doctors like this. We all know patriarchs and matriarchs like this, that because they are the authority in the community, they can say and do whatever they want. They, and you're going to be back at their house next Sunday, or you're going to be back at their office for your next appointment. Because of their expertise, because of their experience, because of their whatever, because of their position, their station. But Jesus was like, I'm not going to abuse my authority. And, and in doing so, abuse those that I'm in relationship with. I'm going to stand in my authority. And let that give me the confidence to be kind, even when folks are not being kind to me. Right. He was a relationship manager. I love that. And then this was like, I mean, th this sentence, for me, I, I would love for this to just, like, control my steering wheel of my life, you know? Jesus was able to control his emotions, not put a damper on them, right. but he was able to use his emotions constructively to achieve his, girl, his goal of healing the little girl and to form strong, positive relationships among those who believed and would believe. So he said, you know, this, this story is not done. You might be crying, you might be laughing, you might be angry, but you're going to be believing after this. So I don't want to mess up what we're going to have in the future by chastising you for your temporary insanity. You know? How much, and I know you say, I'm not Jesus, I'm not Jesus, but Jesus said greater rewards, greater things will we do in his name. I think this idea of being better than the next man is wrong, is the wrong mentality in the first place. We were born into a broken world that's separated by race, religion, and class. Anybody know who said this? Kanye. Kanye. Is, this the, is this the quote that's circulating on social media right now? Though? No, it's not. No. Thank you. I just want to just, Kanye's EQ, y'all. I love Kanye. I love him. I am a, I, I'm more than a fan. I, I support his vision. I respect his work. I like him as a person. He said some amazing things during his interview with The Breakfast Club. Amazing. 
He said some really clear, resonant things. But all those things got convoluted. All those things got pushed, brushed to the side. Maybe people will revisit them later. But all those things got convoluted when the masses began to focus on his comments about his ex-girlfriend. Now, how could he have used his emotions to constructively accomplish a goal, something good, you know? I just wonder, how could he have lovingly and quietly moved past that question and continued to talk about his visions and his dreams and his hopes and the, the technology of the boost and the, you know what I'm saying? Like, but, I, and I feel like those things are still possible to be explored. But do you see what can happen if we don't master our relationship? Do you see what can happen? It's something very special about a person who can speak highly of an ex. It's something very unique. You, you, you know people who have been through some things and can tell some stories, but don't. I respect folks so much who have the ability and the self-management to be able to speak positively about a person that has hurt them deeply and move forward. That is, that takes a special sense of discipline. That takes a special character. And that character is what you remember when that person has something new on the horizon. You're like, oh, it may not be a cognitive memory. You may not say, oh, they spoke highly of their ex-husband, so let me see what they're doing. But you think to yourself, there is something special about this person that I want to keep watching. Yeah. There's something unique about this person that I trust. There is something presidential about the person. What a watch. <laughs> but when someone speaks negatively about someone publicly, it just kind of takes their presence, nicks it a little bit. It kind of takes it, you, you wonder, it's like, ugh. It convolutes the, the truth a little bit. So what's the lesson I learned from this? Never be recorded saying anything negative about anybody. Seriously. You know? That's just straight up. And then you gotta go through these, these emotional questions. I think Kanye had to ask himself, just like Jesus had to ask himself, am I in danger of losing what I need? If I, didn't, if I don't think I'm in danger of losing what I need, my response is gonna be very different. I need to respond with those soul answers. I need to respond with I have what is essential, that truth. Then you think about am I important? When you're asked a question in your relationship, you have to think about my, my emotions are revving up because I feel like I'm not important. You gotta say, hey man, let me focus on who I can serve. Am I a failure? You did this and you did that and you didn't do this and you didn't do that. Okay, okay, well let me find where graciousness abounds in my life. Mm -hmm. Am I worth loving? I feel rejected, I feel left out, I feel unworthy. Let me find where I'm more authentic. Let's read this together. Ready? Go. The quality of our relationships does not determine the quality of our emotions. See, we have it backwards. We think when our relationships are good, we'll be happy. If my partner would just do this, then I'd be happy. If my mama would just stop doing this, then I'd be happy. If my kids, if my friends, if my so-and-so would just change this, then I'd be happy. 
But the opposite is true. The value of our emotions directly impacts the quality of our life. Oh, we can read it together. Go. The value of our emotions directly impacts the quality of our relationships. Meaning, the way we control our emotions and the way we use our emotions to constructively accomplish a goal, that determines the quality of our relationships. But when we wild out in our emotions or all up in our feelings, as the current saying is, when we all up in our feelings, that completely subtracts from the quality of our relationships. We are enslaved by our relationships at that point. We're enslaved by the emotions that are going back and forth in our relationships. Let's read this together. Ready? Go. The strength of our emotional mastery is directly proportional to the health of our relationships. Isn't that the goal, guys? Isn't it the goal for our relationships to be these healthy exchanges of joy and love and ideas and information? Isn't that the hope? So these, psycho, these psychologists and these psychiatrists have been studying Jesus' healing and the many accounts of the healings that happened in his time. And guys, do you know that in layman's terms, what they have said was that a lot of the seizures and the blindness and the deafness and the demon possession, a lot of the stuff that Jesus was said to have healed. Now this is coming from a group that was trying to disprove that Jesus was actually given this healing power. They said that beyond the mystical, unexplained, supernatural phenomenon that took place when Jesus laid hands on them, used his spittle, used mud, among all the supernatural things that take place, the one thing that they know for sure is that Jesus, through his emotional intelligence, was able to elicit a level of trust and faith in the people he healed. And that trust and that faith, that ability to trust and believe in someone, began to make them open to be healed. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. What they're saying is, among all the supernatural, unexplained reasons why Jesus was able to heal people, one of the things that they can explain is that Jesus' emotional intelligence made it so that he could elicit faith and trust people and in their bodies the ability to have faith in, trust in, believe in, and love someone and exchange those kinds of experiences made them more available to be healed. So what they think is some of the stress that was happening in their bodies was soothed by their own belief, by their own trust, by their own love. And so it made them more open to being healed. How many people can we elicit faith and trust in as we master our relationships and engage and ignite their healing? How many, and guess what happens? When we engage and ignite other people's healing, guess what we do in ourselves? We heal ourselves. There's a transfer of energy, and it's a symbiotic healing that takes place. Ms. Courtney, you had a question? No, I was just, I had a That's called psychosomatic healing. It's what happens when you go to the doctor and you get a placebo, but because you got the placebo and you went to the doctor and your symptoms changed, it's because your mind told your body that you were doing the right things to be healed. And so Jesus had this psychosomatic effect on people that in addition to the supernatural 
unexplained healing power that he has, there is this one area that can be explained and replicated in our behavior, which is that when we are good relationship masters, when we manage our emotions, and when we use how we feel in a way that constructs and lifts up. You know, scripture says love builds up, but pride puffs up. Love builds up when we use our emotions to build up. When we say, I'm so mad about this situation that I'm going to do my job so that it never happens again. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed by this that I'm going to learn what I need to do better next time. Boy, I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn. I'm going to read so hard, I'm going to go off on this book. I'm not going to go off on this book. You know? We develop a healing EQ. And what happens in our lives, this is what it looks like. We're able to control our emotions. We're not repressing our emotions. We're not ignoring our emotions. We're not telling ourselves that our emotions are not valuable. We're using them constructively, and we're achieving desired goals. You know, sometimes we have goals in relationships, but they're not the desired goals of the same two people. And guess what, guys? Uh, to teach somebody by going off so they don't come across the wrong person the next time is not a good goal in your relationship. <laughs> I mean, I, I had to go off so I could teach you because everybody's not as nice as me, right. and you're going to come across the wrong person right. next time. Like, that's not a good goal. <laughs> <laughs> Just eliminate that as a goal. Just cut it. Yeah. Desire, what have you guys decided in your relationship is a goal that you both have? Do you want to have fun? Do you want to experience love? Do you want to grow? Do you want to know something together? And then we form strong relationships. You know, every relationship that's strong ain't healthy. Sometimes we have strong bonds and they ain't healthy. And sometimes we have really good relationships that are healthy, but the bond is weak. So the goal is to strong, form strong relationships that are also positive. A positive relationship is generative. A positive relationship develops healthy behaviors. A positive relationship is productive and produces more positivity in the world. So this is what our relationships look like when we micromaster our relationships, when we control our emotions, when we study scripture and we find ourselves in the same places where Jesus was, but we decide to be authentic. We decide to answer to our soul's, um, are we, our emotions questions with our soul's answers. I have what I need. I'm going to look for what's abundant. I'm going to Feel on these things. So as I close and as Rebecca prepares to, to um, walk us through the offering moment, I just want to invite everyone in here to submit our emotions to the creator. And when we do feel things, like let's take our feelings and take the experiences to God and then let him help us sort through them so we can design how are we going to achieve our goals and form relationships that are positive and strong? Let that be a sifter for how we respond instead of like flying off at the handle and then having to go back and try and repair what happened when we flew off. So join me in celebrating Rebecca as she comes. Rebecca, you Talked about the planet and how great it is. 
um, and how, you know, all of it belongs to God. I have talked about, um, actually demonstrated what it means to um, trust by Danielle being up here and falling back. And then I'm thinking, okay, how can I, you know, bedazzle you again? <laughs> bedazzle. So I was thinking about, you know, singing, but I said, I can't do that. Um, so as I'm thinking, um, <laughs> tithing. Um, a lot of y'all know about my story and what all I've gone through to get to where I am now. And I think maybe four or five years ago during one of the awakening um, celebrations, I had committed to serving God more. I said, this year, Lynn, I'm going to serve you. So serving to me was instead of worrying about my issues and my emotional, emotional you know, stresses I had, I figured, let me go ahead and serve so everything else will line up in my life. So I started working at um, volunteering at a, uh, the e-gallery. I don't care what they asked me to do, I did it. didn't matter. And I was very consistent with it. Um, and then the following year, another awakening, I mean, celebration, I said, Lord, I want to serve you even more. So I kept building it up because it's not an easy process, you know, because I was building a relationship with God. I was learning how to trust him. And so when Danielle did this, I'm thinking, how many of us really trust God or have a positive relationship with God and now looking at God as oh you know I'm going to come to you just a little bit but I'm not going to fully come to you so for me I felt like to build my relationship with God, with God was to begin serving him and doing those things that's going to give him honor and glory so then I started dealing with my money issues and I remember talking to JR um, a particular evening and he was like you know I just tithe, you know, I'm just going to, I just give it all. And he was breaking it down to me. And I said, okay, I'm going to start tithing. Um, and I did. And the more I tithe, you know, I still had my issues. Um, I began to know who I was by tithing. It was crazy because I had to trust God with my money, but then I also had to seek him more. So the more I seek him, the more I question him and read his word, the more I began to understand who I was and what I'm supposed to do. See, I believe tithing is a threefold. Um, you're not only investing in the church itself to support. I mean, because we invest in a lot of things, right? We invest in shoes. We invest in our car for those immediate gratifications. But we, how do we really invest in God? Do we really put, you know, that money into it or do that service that he yearns for us to do? So, like I said, the more I did that, I realized um, who I was in him. Um, I realized that through serving him and supporting his mission, um, that literally I'm knowing who I am. And I'm not going to cry. Why you going to sit in my relationships that I have. But then, going through all of that, I learned of a talent that I didn't have, and that was painting. So, little by little, as I moved towards him, he moved towards me. I'm not telling you what to do with your money, but I'm telling you that if we invest so much in everything else, 
that give us immediate gratification? Why can't we invest in something that's going to give us a long-lasting gratification, especially in those moments when we're looking for peace and understanding? And we cannot yet master what we're being taught today, but we can kind of be like, okay, Lord, show me because I don't know. You know what I mean? So I ask that, you know, you don't have to bring him. I mean, if you have it, you have it. If you don't. But I started off with, you know, Lord, I surrender it all to you. This is what I have. This is what I can give. And then he began to build me up to do more. You know what I mean? So it's, it's awesome. Because like I said, I was in a place where I didn't know myself. And you remember in those Baptist churches when they say, um, run down to the altar if you, know, if you need healing and, um, and everything else towards the end, you know. And people just start walking and here I go. <laughs> Because I would always go up there. <laughs> I always go up there trying to get something, not realizing I already had it. I just didn't invest in getting what I already had. You know what I'm saying? So the altar is open. Bring your time.
thank you so much that you offered your best when you sent your son, your only son, to come down and live, to be crucified, and to be resurrected. To live a life that conquered sin, and then to conquer death. To heal, to love, and then to tell folks that not him, but their faith made them whole. That they are healed because they believe. God, we are healed because we believe. In the name of Jesus, right now as we stand, we are healed because we believe. Our relationships are already healed because we believe. Our past pains are healed because we believe. And it is in that healing that we will walk, that we will choose to master our relationships for productive, strong bonds that achieve healthy goals in the world, God that we will constructively honor how we feel and use it to accomplish your will in the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, so, so we're, we have some small groups that are happening.